Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. What a fun episode we all have planned today. So first, I'd like to say thank you for Nick Peters for having the idea for today's episode and inviting us to collaborate today. Nick Peters is a Butler University graduate, currently works as a critical care emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at IU Health in Indianapolis. But most relevant for today's conversation is he's also the creator and host of the Pharmacy to Dose Critical Care podcast. For our CardioScripts listeners, if you're not already following and listening to Pharmacy to Dose, be sure to check it out, where you can also find the full and complete version of this episode. For now, we hope you enjoy a condensed version of our discussion with Nick. Top three trials is the name of the game today. So now just FYI, right? When we when we said pick your favorite or your best, the criteria was left loose on purpose, right? So let's talk about what kind of this means. Like the, the first, it'll be landmark, new, and then kind of fun or random, right? Kind of grab bag. So landmark, what, what did we find? Why is it still relevant? Why, why is this article your favorite? What makes it stand out as something that, you know, people still teach about? The new needed to be within the f- kind of two years or so. Why did you like it? What's unique, right? Why did we pick it? And then obviously the grab bag, what's so fun? What's random? Why do you still talk about or reference what's probably a, a not landmark article, um, but something that still kind of comes up in our day to day. And then if, if we have honorable mentions, um, we'll certainly do that at the end because this was challenging. I pulled friends. I did many, many Google searches. And ultimately, I was able to finalize mine, my landmark trial. Now, to understand why I picked my landmark trial, we have to pull a Marty McFly and we're going back in time. Don't worry. We do not have to go all the way back to 1955 for the answer. The year is 2000 and dopamine is our vasopressor of choice. That's right. Levofed is lovingly referred to by nurses as leave them dead, meaning if they're getting norepinephrine, they were sick enough that they would probably pass away. So they had a small perspective study shows a survival benefit with norepinephrine, about a hundred patients compared to dopamine. Hmm. So then we have the 2006 SOAP study, an observational study comparing dopamine and norepinephrine. Observational, but found dopamine increased mortality. Now, I see my cardiology colleagues here. They're like, wait, this is sepsis and septic shock in cardiology. My argument, and we'll, we'll see if, if people want to, to uh, veto or not, is that it's a vasopressor, so it has to deal with the heart, right? So that was, that's my thought. Now, we're in 2006, right? So fast forward to 2008. Very close, right? This is 15 years ago. The 2008 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines in Section F vasopressors, it states, we recommend either norepinephrine or dopamine as the first vasopressor agent to correct hypotension and septic shock. And in the rationale at the guideline author state, there isn't high quality evidence to recommend one catecholamine over another. I hope everyone's still with me. Let's get back into the DeLorean, right? And finally talk about my choice for my favorite landmark article. And that is the 2010 sepsis occurrence in acutely ill patients to trial the SOAP2, a comparison of dopamine and norepinephrine in the treatment of septic shock. All right. A couple things of why I like this study, why I think it's so important. A, 
I think it's crazy that less than 15 years ago, we had to have a trial to figure out what is now considered our workhorse for almost all forms of shock is kind of like our first line agent, right? But what this study found, no difference in the 28-day all-cause mortality, right? Very high mortality in this, right? 52%, 48%. But when they looked at safety, the arrhythmias with dopamine was 24% versus 12 with norepinephrine, a number needed to harm of nine. Now, interestingly, it also increased the amount of severe arrhythmias they had, and they found that in the subgroup of patients with cardiogenic shock, that dopamine increased that 28-day mortality. And at the time, the ACC AHA guidelines recommended dopamine as the first-line vasopressor for hypotension following an MI. So I like highlighting this because like 20 years ago, we did not have a consensus on the first-line vasopressor use. And then, of course, right, we have the 2012 guidelines, um, the surviving sepsis guidelines that did the meta-analysis showing that mortality benefit due to arrhythmias. And now that's why we have norepinephrine as our first-line vasopressor. All right. What do we, what do we, what do we think cardio scripts crew? I knew it was going to be a stretch, but I gave everyone veto power. What do we think? Well, you also preface this all with, we had very loose guidelines for this. So I feel like you gave yourself a little, a little wiggle room there, but you know what? I think, I think you made a fair argument. I don't know what the other cardio scripts members think. I think the amount of times that I talk about this trial with my learners in the cardiac ICU would warrant it to be included because of the things, everything that you mentioned and why we would think about it in our patients who may have cardiogenic shock and septic shock. You know, you're also, these findings were consistent when cardiogenic shock was front and foremost in other trials. So, I mean, I think it did sort of hint at and push further study specifically in cardiogenic shock, which was very surprising to us that norepinephrine also won there. So I, I do feel like, again, regardless of your type of shock, this is still a, a pretty appropriate recommendation. So I'll give it to you. I, I will say I was not prepared to talk about SOAP too. So it is probably a little further off of my radar, but I, I give it to you. The other two are directly cardiac, cardiac cardiology studies. I promise that this was a stretch. And when I said I searched far and wide, I kept coming back to it. And that's why I said you'd know instantly who the critical care pharmacist was um, in, in the crew. Now, let's kind of switch gears into the, uh, the favorite new article, right, published within the last two years or so. Mine meets two years, but I'm adding the or so just um, for some flexibility just in case. And like I said, my article stays in the vasoactive lane, much less controversial. But instead of looking at vasopressors, this article looks at inotropes. Right, So when you look at guidelines, review articles, meta-analyses, consensus statements that compare our two heavyweight inotropes, milrinone versus dibutamine, there might be times that we would prefer one over another, but there wasn't necessarily high-quality evidence-based medicine to back up that claim. Right, It was based on smaller studies or drug characteristics. Right, So enter the only song that I remember from The Sound of Music, and the 2021 study from New England Journal of Medicine, the Do-Re-Mi trial. Do-Re-Mi. Now, dobutamine compared with milrinone trial, it was a Canadian single-center, randomized, double-blind study compared milrinone to dobutamine in patients with cardiogenic shock. Almost all of them had class C, and when you, when you think of the class of that, that's like classic cardiogenic shock is like the, what it stands for. And there's 192 patients, Baseline EF about 25%. And 
And it's funny, Nathan mentioned we don't have just a, a primary outcome of mortality. So this was a composite primary outcome of mortality, cardiac arrest, requiring mechanical circulatory support, MI, stroke, or renal replacement therapy initiation. So we tried to figure out everything that could happen to a patient with cardiogenic shock and put that in a bucket of outcomes. But ironically, what they found was that there was actually no difference between milrinone and dobutamine, about 50% in both groups. That difference was driven by mortality, but again, no difference. They even looked at time-to-event analysis. They didn't find anything. They didn't find anything in any of their secondary outcomes either. Now, would I as a pharmacist like to know more info on the dosing here? Yes. That's my only beef here, right? Because the authors had a chart visually showing the number of patients in each group, and they had like a breakdown of like, if you're in group one, you start your milrinone on up 0.125 and went up to 0.5. But I guess it's just hard to see and interpret from my perspective in the supplementary appendix. So I like that number one... I love that trial because it's not necessarily, it doesn't pick a winner, but it's the highest quality evidence that we have that there might not be a winner. But two reasons why I like this trial. A, I think all of us have taught the point of if a patient took a beta blocker, right? Maybe you don't use dobutamine, maybe you use milrinone, right? Well, when they did a subgroup analysis of these patients, right? In this randomized trial, almost 50% received a beta blocker in 24 hours enrollment. Um, no difference was seen in any of the hemodynamic parameters with dobutamine or milrinone. So something that I, I always used to kind of say is like a pearl. So I was, I like this because it's a nugget of like, this is our best info to show. Maybe that's not a thing. It actually showed beta blockers before cardiogenic shock might've been protective too. So the other reason why I chose this trial is, you know, your trial's at least somewhat important when your, when your data set that's less than 200 patients in a cardiology trial is still having subgroup and post hoc analyses churned out. Like we're talking, the previous trials we talked about are thousands and thousands, and this is almost 200 in a pretty well-designed study. So it's not necessarily superiority of one or another, right? But it's the, it's the, the, a very high quality design of a study where before this, right, we were really just talking about the drug characteristics and you kind of got to just know your provider preferences more or less. Now, at least we know there really is no difference. And so now we can kind of stop fighting battles per se. Well, personally, I love a bias buster and that's what this was. And, you know, for, for me, we, we did a whole episode on it, which automatically tells you our voters were with you. So I'll speak for the crew because we thought it was important enough to to talk about it. And I will just add that I think people forget that ultimately milrinone has to affect the beta receptor through increasing cyclic AMP and then, you know, coupled and actually using calcium to affect that beta receptor. But it's not entirely surprising that beta blockers had a similar underlying effect, but it's just so, it's like a step removed in the pharmacology that it's just hard enough for people to get their mind around. Both have vasodilating properties too, just different mechanisms which they go about that as well. So it's like they're actually very similar in a lot of regards. I like that you mentioned that it's a bias buster because I think historically a lot of times we thought that dobutamine was going to increase your rates of arrhythmias and milrinone was going to cause more hypotension. And we really didn't see those signals in either of those groups with either of those adverse effects in this trial. So um, I really liked the bias buster terminology. The only regret I have about Do-Re-Mi, I mean, three notes, right? Do-Re-Mi. So where's the placebo arm? Because I think they both stink. <laughs> so for me, I really wish we had been like brave enough to be like, what if we don't do that? We just back off a little on their beta blocker and, and try to get through this without the, the need for a vasodilating ionotrope. You know, it's, to me, you're not in shock if you can handle a vasodilator. So that's a, an oversimplification. We've all seen these patients, but 
I, I do wish we had some placebo going on here too. Well, it's funny you say that the capital do re me Too trial just started enrolling last year. That's comparing inotrope to placebo. So maybe what, five years, probably we might have an answer. We'll be, we'll be waiting with, uh, I'm sure you'll be inviting us back, right? hundred <laughs> percent. All right. Rounding out. So my, my fun kind of random article, and then we'll go into some, some honorable mentions and close us out. So, um, I can't talk about the favorite fun article without um, mentioning the source who introduced this to me, which is uh, Chris Pachulo. But this is a 2000 study, and it is outcomes of rapid defibrillation by security officers after cardiac arrest in casinos. Now, let me explain. So the AHA had just started their initiative on having more AEDs available, increasing the number of users. And so Researchers conducted a prospective observational study of cardiac arrests in Nevada casinos to determine if training casino security officers in CPR and using AED devices would help increase the rate of survival. So if anyone knows me, I love Las Vegas. So a a study that's set in a Las Vegas casino, sign me up. So there's 148 cardiac arrest instances, right? But the researchers really focused on 90 patients who had a witnessed VF arrest. And what they found was that in that group, 59% of them survived a hospital discharge. And for those who got their first defibrillation within three minutes, survival rate was 74%. That fell to about 50% if it was after three minutes. You got to think at the time, our survival rates published were really, really low. It was mainly non-shockable rhythms, but you know, five to thirty-five percent what was published. So this was this really was one of the first big studies. A to include like you like we're talking about pragmatic things, right? Include non-researchers into this kind of doing active interventions, and then also right making massive changes to public health and awareness and letting know, hey teaching your your neighbors and and your um communities will actually help things so this is just a it's one of my favorite studies that i always like to talk about when i talk about cardiac arrests and it's yeah casinos vegas cardiac arrests aeds i mean what what more can you ask for so i had a backup in case in case soap 2 got dikembe mutumboed and swatted away and that would have been uh ttm2 would have been my backup landmark cardiology trial because the listeners know I I am upfront with things that I have been proven wrong about. Like for example, I died on the hill of fixed dose Nimbex in ARDS. That was the hill I chose to die on. But a hill that I also died on, I did not think 33 or 36 mattered, but preventing fevers is what ultimately mattered. That's what that trial showed in in a one-liner for me. Um, The other one, this is going to feel like a a Kentucky shout out again, but uh, walk the line was my fun, random um, kind of grab bag article, The Importance of Well-Informed Interpretation of QT Prolongation, featuring Zach Noel and Alex Flannery. Anytime an article opens with a Johnny Cash quote, right, I'm in, and then it kind of talks about all the things to think about of QT prolongations. And I think any of us who have had someone come up and say, the QTC's 485, what, can we change the, I think we need to DC that PRN Zofran, right? I think this literally will um, kind of uh, hit a, a chord with some of that, right? Treat the patient, not the number. So those are my two, my, my two honorable mentions I wanted to be sure to give shout out in the, uh, in the cardiology world. Well, well, that was fun, Nick. Yeah, yep. Had an absolute blast. 
Thanks for tuning in to Cardio Scripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.